you're listening to the When in Spain podcast. Thank you for joining me. My name's Paul Burge and I'm the host for this podcast all about Spain and Spanish life and culture. Coming up in this week's episode, I'm going to be chatting to American photographer Mike Damanti. Now, Mike moved to Madrid about five years ago with his Spanish wife and two children. And uh, while while on a quest for some artistic inspiration uh, for his photography, he came across the Spanish capital's Romani community, who are often the target of abuse and racism, in a bid to try and give them a voice and change people's perception of the Romani community. Uh, Over the years, Mike documented their lives on the streets of Madrid with his camera, and in doing so, he slowly became accepted into their circle, and he often found himself part of their everyday lives. From being invited to eat with their family groups in their cardboard shelters, uh, through celebrating their birthdays, through to sharing some incredibly intimate moments in their lives, such as the birth of their children. And through his journey with the Roma community in Madrid, he produced a touching insight into their lives through his photos. For example, Mike introduced a group of Roma girls to the concept of birthday parties after realising that they didn't even know how old they were. Turning 18 in America, you can vote. Turning 16 in America, you can drive. Turning 21, you can drink. Significance to the numbers, but to the Romani, it's just, I could know my birthday, but who cares? I, I said, your birthday's coming up next week. When that day came, I, I bought a cake and I brought some candles that we had at the office for birthdays. I found the girl and we had an impromptu birthday party on the ground. And it was incredible how they had no idea what I was doing. The birthday girl had no idea what to do with the candle. Over the years, Mike's also shared some of their very darkest hours as well. My all-time favorite is one I've actually never displayed before. It's a, a shot of Sibella with me. It was the day that the hospital discharged her after having the baby. And in this photo, you can see the pain on the face of a woman who has just given birth alone at 23 years old, no father, no mother, Uh, in a foreign country, in a foreign language. Then she was asked to leave the hospital without her newborn baby. And she walked about three and a half kilometers on a cold April morning, only to collapse in a park after an emergency C-section, only to have the police tell her to keep walking. We're discovering Madrid's Romani community in the hour ahead. Stay with us. You're listening to When in Spain. interview with Mike Damanti is just up ahead but this is the part of the show when I like to show my appreciation to When in Spain patrons. So I'd like to give a special appreciative shout out to new When in Spain patrons Nancy Sparacio or Sparacho. I'm not quite sure of the pronunciation Nancy apologies for that and also to new When in Spain patron Dunstan Tuff um, and a couple of other patrons I'd like to say 
thank you to who wanted to remain anonymous. So to all of you guys, uh, Nancy and Dunstan and the others who also uh, became When in Spain patrons, a big, big gracias. I really, really appreciate you signing up to support this show and the work that I do. And indeed, if there are any other When in Spain podcast listeners out there who enjoy this show and would like to show their appreciation by signing up to become a patron and donating a few dollars each month to keep this show going and growing, uh, you can do so by heading across to patreon.com forward slash When in Spain. Another thing I would just like to say at this point also is wherever you are around the world, I wanted to send uh, my thoughts and a message of support to you guys, the listeners, at this difficult and uncertain time with coronavirus. Um, You listen to this podcast because you love Spain. Um, Well, maybe you're planning to come and visit Spain in the not too distant future, but are unsure if you can make the trip. Or maybe you were already booked to come to Spain and had to sadly cancel your plans. Whatever the situation, I really hope that in the meantime, uh, the When in Spain podcast can help transport you to Spain and act as a portal to a country and culture that you love. I will put a coronavirus episode together at the moment. Um, I haven't really got anything new to add to really what everyone else is saying. Um, Spain is one of the worst affected countries in the world at the moment. And I'm sure many of you have already heard about the current situation in Spain. We are still on uh, lockdown or in quarantine, uh, maybe is a better way to put it. That has been extended now for another two weeks uh, until I after Easter. It's kind of difficult for me to put together an episode talking about, you know, the stats and the statistics, um, because as you know, uh, not only in Spain, but with all of the countries around the world, this is changing every hour every day. Um, But what I will do, uh, keep your ears open for a special coronavirus episode. I'm just uh, bringing together my thoughts and a couple of interview snippets from other people as well, uh, just about day-to-day life in Spain at the moment, what's different, what our routines are like, uh, what people are doing to try and stay occupied and motivated and optimistic and that kind of thing. So I will put together a special coronavirus episode, possibly later this week or maybe early next week. At the moment, I didn't really just want to add to the noise of uh, adding to people's anxiety of all these depressing statistics that we keep hearing about every day. So let's get into the interview with Mike Damanti. Mike moved to Spain in 2015 while initially feeling a little bit of an outsider in Spain, uh, trying to learn Spanish, find work. Um, Well, a chance encounter uh, one day while he was looking for inspiration, looking for something different, a new angle on life in Spain for his photography. Uh, Little did he know then that this would be the beginning of a long term friendship with the Romani population in Spain 
campaign and indeed uh, a long-term photographic series which he has since exhibited in Spain in Madrid as well. Just before we get into the interview with Mike Damanti, um, what I suggest doing, if you can, is opening up his website and having a look at his wonderful photography while you listen to this episode. During the episode, Mike makes references to some of the photos that he's taken. So you might find it useful to head over to his website and peruse the photos while you're listening. Now, his website is in the show notes of this episode, so you can just click on it. So without further ado, here's the interview with Mike. Mike, thanks for taking the time to join the When in Spain podcast. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. You're a photographer, among other things as well that you do. How did you first get involved with the Romani community here in Madrid? Why they were a source of inspiration for you in terms of photography? Were you looking for a new angle on life in Spain and life in Madrid? When I got here about five years ago, I was not planning on becoming... Uh, any kind of advocate for Madrid's Roma community. I was just an outsider in the country trying to learn the language and find work. So I took a job on Gran Via and I passed through Seoul every day to and from work and I would see these women in Seoul uh, every day and I became increasingly curious about them. So I've been a street photographer now for nearly 25 years and I've always been looking for interesting people. And the Romani were tremendously fascinating. I mean, their clothes, their way of life, the fact that this subculture existed right underneath our noses, but nobody knew anything about them. And I would ask people at work or friends or family, you know, what's the deal with these people? Who are these, these women asking for money in Seoul? And the universal response was always, oh, they're just some gypsies. Stay away from them. They'll rob you, they'll spit on you, they'll surround you and pick your pocket, they'll take a knife and cut you. Uh, yet I would watch them every day and I didn't see any of that. I got to know them, I started telling stories about them at work, but no one seemed to care. Uh, more often than not, the water cooler conversation revolved around shopping or fancy cocktail selfies on rooftop bars, but nobody wanted to hear about these interesting people I was meeting. Talk us through the first time that you uh, approached one of them and I presume to sort of to, to ask permission to take their photo and how that went. I remember it like it was yesterday uh, because I could get no definitive answers from the people I was asking about them. I decided to approach the women for myself. They were understandably skeptical of me at first and I noticed that no one, for example, nobody was reading their cardboard signs. So I decided to create my own, and instead of the long four-line messages that they had on their cardboard signs, I made more lighthearted joke signs like free Wi-Fi or Brexit, keep calm, give me money. Yeah, I gave them to the women. Um, they were suspicious at first, but quickly realized the lighthearted signs were more effective, and this seemed to break the ice. Originally, they were just holding the signs that we're quite used to seeing, saying, you know, please, can you help me with some money to buy some food or something like that? Nobody was, was leaving looking down on them, and the fact that they were in Seoul, people they were asking were tourists. They didn't speak Spanish, so the signs were in Spanish, and I decided to give them signs in English. You know, it was a bit of marketing. In a way, there's an element of humor attached to that, like the, the free Wi-Fi sign. and it was, it was all jokes. It was just silly. 
So how did you go from that initial meeting with them, the first photographs, to becoming friends with them, forging friendships and becoming more embedded in their community? Who are they and what have you learned about their background? The people themselves, not the ones that I meet, but the ancestry, are originally from northwestern India, I believe in a, an area called the Rajasthan province. And they began migrating west somewhere around 500 AD. Yeah. And they became exiled from place to place for generations. And the term gypsy itself comes from the word Egypt, where many Europeans thought they were from. So it's it's very similar to how... The term Indians are, is mistakenly given to Native Americans. It's just, it's something wrong, but it's just stuck. The group of Romani that I know are from a town in eastern Romania called Kobadin on the Black Sea. And they all speak Romanian, of course, but to each other, they all speak Turkish because they identify as Turkish. I, I don't know if, if they migrated from there recently or I believe someone mentioned that that part of Romania identifies as Turkish uh, before they had moved borders or something like that. I didn't even know this. So I, I probably knew them for about three years, all the Romani in yeah. Madrid. And then one of the comedians that I knew happened to be from Turkey. He saw the photos and my captions with their names on Facebook. And he said, uh, I think they're Turkish. And I said, how do you know? He says, their names are all Turkish. So he says, do you mind if I come down to Seoul with you? Boom, he starts speaking Turkish to all the girls and they start talk talking to him in Turkish. I mean, you know someone for three years and then you never know that they're speaking Turkish. In my linguistic ignorance, I didn't know the difference between Romanian and Turkish. So I guess, why would you? You didn't speak this. Yeah, why would I? So he came along and I guess he acted as a kind of translator for you. Yeah, it was a great day. What brought them to Spain and Madrid specifically? Do you know? Had they talked about where they made the journey from Romania to Spain and what that journey was like and how long they've been here? It's similar to how people immigrated to the United States at the turn of the century. They heard stories back home that jo jobs were available you know, jobs in hotels and jobs in restaurants. They all came to Spain with ideas of getting rich, but nobody had an idea how. The women are basically presented with two options while they're here. They can beg for change because they can't get jobs or they can go into prostitution, which the ones I know refuse. So they, they beg for change. I've spoken to them many times about working and they said they're more than happy to do so. They haven't the means to do so. There's no access to newspapers they can't read. They obviously don't have LinkedIn. And then there's the stigma of being a gypsy. And you see when you walk through Seoul next to one of these women, the crowds of people just part like the Red Seas because they don't know if they're going to be robbed. They are a victim of the stigma and the preconceptions. Whenever I tend to sweat the small stuff in life, like work deadlines or uh, Wi-Fi password not working or traffic, I think of them and it sort of puts everything into perspective. They have taught me to treat each person as individuals. And like any group of people, there are some good, there are some bad, and the vast majority are in the middle somewhere. But the point is, I got to know each one of them first before I formed this opinion. I had to. And I feel that the danger lies when we make assumptions based on the group itself. I hear that a lot. Uh, people tell me, oh, a gypsy stole my phone when I was in London on holiday back in 2008, so how can you be friends with them? Yeah. And I always say this, I don't vouch for every Roma person in the world. But of the 30 or so that I know here in Madrid, I can tell you that there's about 10 or so that I like. There's about 10 or so that I don't care for very much. And there's about 10 in the middle that I could go either way. Give us a sort of flavor of some of the more touching or interesting stories 
that you heard from them firsthand. I mean, I imagine stories of struggle, but also imagine some funny, humorous stories as well, right? The stories range. So there's there's deep, touching, introspective stories that make you cry, and then there's the lighthearted, silly ones um, about them teasing each other and, and such. It's like hanging out with anyone. But I have to admit, my perception of them when I before I met them was quite ignorant at first because I didn't have anything to go on. I had no information. Anybody that would talk about them only said negative things. And I remember the first conversation that I ever had with one of these girls was quite intense. I was walking home one day from another disappointing day of cliche photos. And <laughs> every photographer knows this. You go out, you, you feel all inspired, and then you come home with a bunch of pictures of buildings and silhouettes and shadows. And it's just, it's all the same. Yeah. And I remember... One of these Roma girls sleeping on the ground holding a change cup. And I remember this like it was yesterday. People were walking all around her. And she was sleeping so peacefully with this look on her face, this calm look. And I thought, I, I don't think I could get that deep sleep in my own bed, safe in my house. And there this girl is on the ground still holding the cup. And her name was Sibella, but I didn't know that yet. And quite honestly, nor did I really care. I just saw these women as photographic gold at the time. And my only intent was to get a few brilliant shots of them and then go home. So I knelt down to take a photograph. And as I stood up, I noticed out of the corner of my eye, somebody walking towards me very quickly. It was another Roma girl walking right towards me. And she's saying, what are you doing? That's my sister. And uh, turns out that was a lie. But I didn't, I didn't know that. And all I could think about was, you know, she's going to spit on me. She's going to hit me. or I don't know. I didn't know. Something bad. And at that time, I approached it purely from a photographic standpoint, from a distance. I don't know them. They don't know me. I'm just taking photos. That's yeah. all I had at, in my mind at that point. And however, after about the ne over the next four years, after meeting with them every day, carefully documenting their story, gradually becoming absorbed into their lives. And throughout it all, I've been with them through everything, through births, births, deaths, arrests, fights, all the little day-to-day -day struggles that we go through every day. And I think everything changed when I introduced them to the concept of birthdays, which is quite an interesting story. So here's one of the lighthearted moments. I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but I was talking to a group of them and somehow my birthday came up in the conversation. And I remember saying that my birthday was July 12th and one of the girls stopped me and asked me how I knew that. Confused by this question, I, said, yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, this must be getting lost in translation. You've got two people, Spanish as a second language with no schooling, me on one end and the girls on the other. So a lot of times things get lost in translation. I thought this was simply one of those moments. So I said something like, it's my birthday. Everybody knows their birthday. And to which I received a confused face. And at this moment, I asked her her birthday and she shrugged her shoulders. And then I asked one of the other girls. There was about six of them. And to my astonishment, none of them knew or had any idea of their birthdays. They didn't know when they were born. Most of them didn't know the year. And uh, I couldn't believe this. So... I know they have ID cards that I've seen them show to the police dozens of times. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I just said, give me your ID. Romanian IDs are infamously difficult to sift through and decipher. But I was able to find where the birthdays were. 
I told each girl their birthday, and they had somewhat interest, you know. Oh, I was born in March. Okay. But they didn't really, they didn't see any significance to it. No, for us, that's kind of kind of unimaginable almost. They didn't have any idea. So when I tell the story, I get a few questions. They say, well, there's no way that they can't know their birthday because it's on their IDs, it's on their paperwork. They need that to come into the country. Yes, that is technically true, but there's something, there's a couple of things battling that. Number one, all of them are completely illiterate. All of the women, I should say. 100% illiterate. They don't go to school at all. I think the men go to school to about age 12 or something. The women don't at all. So the the older women don't can't even read numbers. I mean, I remember, I remember being in a store with one of them trying to buy uh, baby formula, and she she couldn't tell what was a a seven and what was a three. Wow. But the younger ones, yeah, they can't read. So I would read their IDs and say like, your birthday's this, your birthday's that, and then one of the girls, her birthday was like in a week. So I said, hey, your, ber- your birthday's next uh, Thursday. And she had no idea, I suppose. No idea, and she didn't, she didn't care. Oh, so, so let me go back a second. So there's two things working against the birthday thing. Number yeah. one, they can't read. Number two, it doesn't hold any kind of significance to them. You know, like us, turning 18 in America, you can vote. Turning 16 in America, you can drive. Turning 21, you can drink. Significance to the numbers, but to the Romani, it's just, I could know my birthday, but who cares? I, I said, your birthday's coming up next week. And when that day came, I, I bought a cake from McDonald's and I brought some candles that we had at the office for birthdays. I found the girl and we had an impromptu birthday party on the ground. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Birsen. And it was incredible how they had no idea what I was doing. Like, they didn't know what the hell I was singing. It was like to, and, and the birthday girl had no idea what to do with the candle. Like, after I finished singing, I was like, okay, go. And they were like, go what? And I'm like, the, the candle. And they were like, yeah, there it is. And I'm like, no, you got you to gotta blow it out. And she blew it out, and then all the women just stared at me. Like, there was zero understanding of what... And there I was, uh, introducing the concept of birthdays to people. You know, like pe- people, people in a capital city in Europe. After that, they all asked for their birthday parties. So because I know about 30, there were about two birthday parties per month that they would all chip in their money for. It's their favorite thing in the world now. So they, <laughs> That's incredible. They go, they go to the window of the bakery and they pick out the cake they want. They hand me the money. It's always change. It's like, a, you know, yeah. 20, 20 euros in, ch- in, in change, loose change. Because sadly, they are not allowed in the bakery or McDonald's, even with cash in hand. They, they get ushered out physically. Um, right. And I'd say from the introduction to the concept of birthdays, I really began getting to know the women. And they allowed me into their life to take their photos around this time. That they knew that I wasn't going to hurt them. The, their guards were let down a little bit. And I was able to, to infiltrate their world a little bit. However, I was keeping them at arm's length, maintaining my professional distance up to this point but this professional distance collapsed one day when one of the Romani women Sibella the same girl that was sleeping on the ground when I took her photo yeah I'm, I'm just um, looking at that photo now actually so she's the girl laying on a what looks like a it's a black and white photo you've taken of a, a stone looks like a very you know stone pavement against a stone wall yeah, holding an empty plastic, what well, it looks empty, an empty plastic cup, and she's she's sleeping. And she looks 
she looks young. I mean, I would say she looks, what, around 20, maybe in her early 20s or around that? I believe at that moment she was 21 or 2. So my relationship with them really changed with Sibella. So the way it normally works with them is when they get pregnant, they take a bus back to Romania to have the baby, usually a month before. So they're eight months pregnant. They, so up until eight months, they're sleeping on the ground outside in the elements, whether it's cold or it's hot, begging for change, not allowed to use public restrooms. Um, I can't imagine what that's what that's like. And there was one morning I was walking to work. Sibella was about eight months pregnant. And all of the girls rushed over to me. I could see something was different on their face. This was not a happy moment. Um, and they were all telling me that Sibella had been rushed to the hospital for an emergency C-section. So I was walking to work when they found me and told me what had happened. Uh, I went to work and when I finished work, I, I bought flowers and went to the hospital to congratulate her. When I found her, she was in the room by herself crying. There was no family. I mean, if you've ever been to a hospital room after a woman's had a baby, there's a mother there, mother-in-law, family, that's balloons. Sounded like family, yeah. Yeah, it was an empty room with nothing. Um, she was in a hospital gown and she was just crying. And I said, hey, what's going on? And she had the baby, but the hospital was not going to let her keep the child because she had no Spanish address. Understandably so. I, I, I got that. The, the hospital could not release a baby to go sleep in the park or on the ground, of course. So sure, they have a care of duty to the baby, I suppose. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, so suddenly I found myself talking to the hospital staff at Moncloa and looking up Roma support groups on LinkedIn uh, finding immigration lawyers and tracking down Sibella's husband in Plaza de España somewhere. All of a sudden, it went from photographer doing his job at a distance to now I'm involved. So I found out that Sibella would be able to keep the baby if we could provide a, an address in Romania that she lived in, proof of a ticket home somehow, it didn't matter how, a, a bus, a plane, it didn't matter, and photos for the family book. Now, I knew I could take care of the last part myself. Yeah. And I, I went in with her and her husband into the nursery to photograph this baby who wasn't mine. It was a very surreal moment with two Romani people who I didn't know two years prior. And there I was in the nursery photographing a baby. That's such an intimate moment in someone's life. And there you are with one foot on the inside, but also an outsider capturing that moment. It must have been a really surreal yeah. moment for you. I didn't know really what I was doing. It was, I was, you know, in those moments, you're kind of running on instinct and adrenaline is pumping. You don't have much time to think. In retrospect, it was a pretty surreal moment. I, like you said, I had one foot in my life and one foot in theirs. And it all started from photographs. So after a crazy week of speaking to the lawyer and, and the, the Romani groups telling me what to do, uh, cutting through all this red tape, Sibella was able to keep the child and they are now back home in Romania together. This was a corner. This was a huge turning point in my relationship with the women. And here I was, this photographer meant to keep my, dist my distance mm -hmm. from the subjects, and now I'm involved. And it was impossible not to get absorbed into their lives. At that, at that point, I was not just a photographer anymore. I was a, part of, I was a part of their lives. I was their friend. They came to me for help. And what kept me through it was years from now, if I could look back on my life and say, you had an opportunity to reunite a woman with her newborn baby and you just walked away from it, I couldn't live with myself. How could I walk away? How could I just go back to my job 
I mean, it would take an extremely sociopathic and stoic person to just experience that and then just go back to your life. There are some funny moments that we share together. I can think of one with Sibella herself that she used to like to come to me on hot days and give me a euro to go into McDonald's to buy her an ice cream. When it was really hot, I would walk through Seoul and they would all hand me money. And I used to love that because you'd see all these tourists watching me getting Romany girls handing me euros. Giving you money, which is... Yeah, they didn't know why. You know, they just, they're like, what is going on with this guy? <laughs> and so I would take the... I would take the money into McDonald's because, as I mentioned earlier, they can't go into McDonald's. There's a security guard there that pushes them out. So I go in and I, I would come out with, you know, eight cones, wherever maybe I could carry for each girl. And uh, this one particular day, there was a, a, a unique protest outside of the uh, in Seoul. And it was really getting heated. They were they were chanting something angrily. Uh, you know how protests go. It's usually like um, justice, justice, justice for the people. It's usually that that cadence, that rhythm. You know, da 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 da. And Sibella kept bothering me, saying like, you know, come on, you know. She has this high pitched voice, and she would say like, come on, I want my ice cream. And I say, yeah, give me a minute. I gotta photograph this thing. And then uh, in in the in behind me, in the back of my ear, during the protest, I hear. Helado, helado, helado por Sibela, helado, helado, helado por Sibela. <laughs> so I, I said, okay, yeah, you, you win me over. I'll go get your ice cream now. My point is like the range of emotion with them between helping her reunite with her baby to having her trick me into buying her ice cream and everything in between, the spectrum of it was vast. You never knew what you were going to get, but I was, I was starting to realize that I was getting much more from them than they were from me. Uh, they were brightening my life. They were making my life more interesting. And I was getting these, also these brilliant photographs into their lives, into their private lives. I mean, you can't just walk up to a Romani person and snap their photograph. I don't know what's going to happen. But uh, to allow me in to everything was, was immeasurable that I could never, I could never quantify. We see the Romani community in some ways live their lives in a very, you know, very publicly. They, they, they live on the streets, they're outside, uh, and particularly in Madrid, you know, in the sort of very busy touristy locations. It's interesting that kind of juxtaposition of them, they're, they're very public, but also still there's that distance in, indeed for you as a photographer. You could walk through Sol any time, any day and see them, but then to make that kind of cross, to have one foot in their world and then for them to be you know you capturing and them sharing with you these incredibly intimate moments in their life incredible you can tell uh, by looking at a photograph whether the subject knows the photographer or doesn't in other words if you were to look at photographs of your children or your spouse or your parents and you took the photograph there's a relaxed calmness to it whether if you just walk up to somebody you don't know there's a wall up there's there's a tense a tenseness, uh, element of stress. I knew that my photographs of them were not going to be intimate unless they got to know me and I got to know them. Not just my name, but everything. I mean, they've met my children. When I would have a difficult day at work, I would take a walk outside the office. I'd walk to Seoul. They could see me visibly upset and they would say, hey, is everything okay? And I go, no, my boss, he's being difficult. And they were like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, 
So I would bounce off of them as much as they would bounce off of me. I had to get to know them. That, I would say, comes across in your photography. They are incredibly intimate portraits, really, I would say. I mean, you can tell by the way that you've taken the photographs of just how close you have been able to get you know, to them, the you know, shots that, without knowing them, would have been impossible, I imagine. Impossible. Absolutely. Impossible. I mean, I guess that's a kind of a segue to the question I wanted to ask you, really. What has been the favourite photo that you've taken of them that through that intimacy that has allowed you to, to take that intimate photography? Of all the beautiful photographs I was lucky enough to take over the past five years, there are several that stand out. For example, the one of Sibella sleeping on the street uh, so peacefully. Uh, there's one of another girl named Sevda um, who's looking off into the distance that everyone seems to like. But my all-time favorite is one I've actually never displayed before. It's uh, a shot of Sibella with me. And uh, the photo itself is not so outstanding. However, it, it was the day that the hospital discharged her after having the baby. And in this photo, you can see the pain on the face of a woman who has just given birth alone at 23 years old, no father, no mother, the husband wasn't even in the room with her, uh, in a foreign country, in a foreign language. Um, then she was asked to leave the hospital without her newborn baby, uh, and she walked about three and a half kilometers on a cold April morning, only to collapse in a park after an emergency C-section, only to have the police tell her to keep walking, and I found her that afternoon, and I love this photo so much because it was me telling her that I would do everything I could to get her baby back. And you can just see the look on her face. She's, she's been put through the ringer. I mean, the, the look on her face is just, it's devastation. Unimaginable, the pain she must have been feeling. Uh, one of my favourites, it's a colour photograph. The way the photo's taken, I've kind of assuming that they're a, a couple. They look like they're in their 60s. And there's a guy in the background holding his walking stick and he's wearing a, a, a like a beret or a cap. And in the foreground, there's uh, a, a woman with a headscarf wearing a very colourful dress, I guess holding a cup with her walking stick, smiling at the camera. The guy is sort of smiling and looking down. And it looks like there's a sort of element of, like, celebration in this photo. It looks like he's dancing. I can imagine there'd be music playing and, and, and he's dancing. I don't know if you know the photo that I mean. That photo is... Her name is Maria. A lot of the older women are named Maria, but she's interesting because she has a backwards knee. So if you've ever seen her in Madrid, she's very easy to find because one of her knees goes backward like an ostrich. And the man she's laughing at is Antonio. He's another one of my photographic subjects. He's a guy that dances and everybody loves to see an old man dancing and he's hilarious. He's kind of a local celebrity. Um, the interesting thing about Antonio is that he never remembers me. You know, I'll, I'll walk up to him one day and say, Antonio, and he just points down to his little uh, basket of money, and he never remembers who I am. Yeah, that's a that's a great picture too. Two worlds colliding there too, and I know that they don't like each other. Is there any kind of integration between the Romani community and and other homeless people? There is a very frigid relationship between them. I'd say there's really three groups. There's two groups of Romani. One is from a city in Romania, Medjidia. Then there's the group that I know more from Kobadin. They don't seem to like each other because they usually compete for the same spots to beg. 
for example, in front of the Mercado de San Miguel and things like that. And then there's the homeless community. Now, I, I know them to be vastly different groups because we handed out, uh, there's, a, there's a, a group of people that, I, that helped me with this. There's a, a woman from Romania named Clementina who uh, helps translate. And she also helps kind of soften the distance between myself and the girls because being that the girls are female and that I'm male, there needs to be some distance. You know, I don't try to put my arms around them in photos and things like that most of the time. If they do it, it's okay. But with Clementina there, uh, there's much more intimacy. They, they, They love to speak to another woman, especially in Romanian. And there's another photographer that I work with named Antonio. Antonio Bresso is another brilliant photographer. We sort of work together in our Roma project. We handed out uh, blankets and these Christmas packages together throughout Madrid during Christmas uh, to the homeless. And when we handed them out to the homeless, for example, the Spanish homeless, there was a, a big sense of like, oh my God, thank you. Merry Christmas. God bless you. You know, you guys are doing a good thing. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then when we got to the Romani and handed theirs out, it was quite the opposite. It was, why only one blanket? Why not two? Hey, he got more than, his blanket's bigger than mine. It's a, it's a thing that I laugh at about, and I'm glad you, you caught that, because I don't see that as a negative thing. They, their culture dictates that they have to keep negotiating. So if they ask you for a euro and you give them a euro, they go, all right, how about two? They were very aggressive uh, with the blankets. So I noticed the difference. With Antonio and Maria in that photo, it was a rare moment because Antonio strongly dislikes all the Romani and the Romani tend to resent the Spanish homeless for being local, for speaking the language, for having the ability to speak to the people they're begging from. In that photo, you see a rare moment where Maria is enjoying Antonio dancing and Antonio is sort of dancing for Maria. And I was lucky enough to catch it. And you captured that moment perfectly. Yeah. In the end, I'm just the guy pressing a button. You know, I just, you, right place, right time. You just try to increase your chances of being at that place at the right time. You've had a photography exhibition and I believe uh, that you've organized events for uh, Madrid for refugees. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. And also, do you have anything else in the pipeline for the future that, uh, that the listeners should be keeping an eye out for? I had a photo exposition last year at the Centro Cultural Galileo in Madrid with my cousin John Damanti, who is also another gifted photographer. Um, but I would like to take this opportunity to let your listeners know that I am, I would be, I would proudly display my photos at any event that they wish. If you have a gallery or you just want to host a fundraiser or a party, I would be happy to volunteer my services. Anything to raise awareness. And at the very least, the Madrid Romani have found a friend and an ally, and I'd like them to know that they are the best thing that has happened to me in Spain. I am just a photographer. I'm not a social worker. So this is where I'm hoping one of your listeners steps up and offers the next step towards helping them gain employment, which is my ultimate goal. Now, I've spoken to all of them about this, and 100% of them are able and willing to clean or cook or sew I know the men are all skilled in manual labor, such as construction, metalworking, and recycling. Um, and speaking about the Madrid for Refugees program, you can feel free to follow them. They have a, a page on Facebook called Madrid for Refugees, and we host uh, several events. 
so we can get involved. We have the, the Roma project, which now only consists of three people. Mm -hmm. Antonio Bresso, who's a photographer, uh, Clementina, who's an interpreter, and myself. But if anyone wants to get involved, we can certainly figure out a way to have you help. If you speak the language or you're a photographer or you simply want to help. Mike, it's been great talking to you and thanks for taking the time to join the podcast. Thank you, Paul. I'm the lucky one. I'm a big fan and uh, happy to be on your show. This is When in Spain with Paul Burge. We've been talking with Mike Damanti. If you'd like to find out more about Mike, his photography and the work that he does with the Romani community here in Madrid, uh, his Instagram is damanti underscore, which is D-A-M-A-N-T-I underscore. He has a Facebook page. Uh, you just need to search for Michael Damanti. His website, mcxd19.wixsite.com forward slash Damanti. The Roma project that uh, Mike mentioned at the end of the interview there, which includes Antonio Bresso, who's a photographer, uh, Clementina Pliseu, who's an, a Romanian interpreter, and indeed Mike himself as well. If you'd like to join them, if you'd like to get in touch with them, Mike has said to get in touch with him directly at his email address, which is mc xd at hotmail.com also important to mention that uh, mike runs a facebook page called madrid street photography So that will do it for this week's episode of the When in Spain podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Just a quick note to say uh, before I go that if you are new to this podcast, uh, do go back and check out uh, the other 65 back episodes. Uh, if you're interested in Spain, there is something for everyone there. We've got episodes on travel, cultural insights, language, plus a whole host of interviews with guests who know best talking about all sorts of practical uh, advice and uh, insights all about Spain. So if this is the first episode you've listened to, head back and check all of the previous episodes out as well. Especially at the moment, if you want some escapism and you're looking to be transported to Spain, uh, go and check those episodes out the other thing important to mention as well if you're new to the podcast is that when in spain also has a presence on all of the usual social media hangouts especially uh, the when in spain facebook group which is free to join and important to mention that i've just started two new when in spain groups on facebook one is uh, the when in spain the book club uh, which is a book club for Spain fans and in particular for books about Spain. Now, they're not in Spanish. They are books about Spain in English or that are translated into English. What we're going to do, guys, uh, every two months, we are going to, in the group, pick a book that we are all interested in reading about Spain. Then we're going to go away and read it for those eight weeks. And then we're going to meet up in the group and share our thoughts about the book. As simple as that. So if you're, uh, again, uh, in quarantine or lockdown and you're feeling a bit bored, uh, check out the When in Spain book club group where we'll be picking uh, a new book to start with. I think next week, by the end of this month, I'm asking people for their recommendations at the moment. And hopefully we can pick a book by the end of March and uh, we'll have two months to read it. And 
we talk about it, uh, well, I guess at the beginning of the summer, at the end of May or beginning of June. And this is something I hope to keep going even when uh, the lockdown or quarantine is finished and things start to return gradually back to normality that we can keep the When in Spain book club going. And it's also a place for people to share any kind of articles about Spanish literature and to also share their recommendations as well. And what I'll be doing in the When in Spain book club group is putting together a kind of ultimate list of books on Spain. I have also created another group in Facebook called the When in Spain Filmoteca. And this is a group very similar to the book group, except this time it's all about Spanish films. And it's a place for people to share their recommendations and suggestions for Spanish films. And what we're going to try and do in that group is uh, choose a film together each month and watch the film and share our comments and thoughts about the film as well. So head across to those groups. You'll find them on the When in Spain page. Just hit the groups and you'll see them. Ask to join. I will let you into the group and then it's uh, you'll see all the information inside the groups as well. So Facebook groups aside, uh, the other thing to mention is that When in Spain is on Instagram and uh, you can see photography from When in Spain on Instagram, often uh, photography which relates to the podcast episodes and when in spain is also on twitter as well if you do enjoy the podcast uh, please do consider signing up to become a when in spain patron and you can do that at patreon.com forward slash when in spain another thing that really helps uh, spread the word tell any friends or family who are interested in spain uh, that the podcast exists uh, it's available on all of the usual uh, podcasting platforms whether it's on your uh, smartphone or on your computer and it's also available to stream as well just google when in spain and you will see all of the links at the top of the google search so I'll leave it there for this week. There will be a new When in Spain episode coming to your ears next week as well. Just because of the coronavirus does not mean that this podcast will stop. Uh, I'll still be producing episodes and hopefully still be getting guests to appear on the show via the miracle of technology, via Skype or by the phone. So do stay tuned for a new episode next week and many more episodes as well during this uh, unusual and uh, un certain time in the meantime stay well stay indoors and until the next episode i will bid you all hasta luego